is Sana Sana Podcast, a feminist podcast that promotes healing and normalizes mental health with Adriana and Adriana. Hey. Hi there. How are you? It's always a little abrupt. <laughs> it's not as smooth as we used to be able to do it. And we're talking about the music specifically in case you didn't catch that. Uh, yes. We've talked about this before. We always um, are... We're always um, still struggling with this new format, but it's actually really fun as well. Um, it's like very DIY. Yes, this is our <laughs> ghetto podcast. Um, it won't last forever as much as we would love to. Um, hopefully, we'll figure this out. But I'm still glad to be here. Um, definitely glad to see you and hopefully have a nice conversation with you. And hopefully, we can share something with our um, listeners. Yeah, I don't know. I'm actually really starting to appreciate this format for um the practice and like lessening my perfectionism like this inability to just let go Mm. you know and i i think that in a way it's a gift that our technology has failed us and we're being forced to uh deal with what we got right so we have a phone that we know we can record directly into soundcloud and then um we have you know, an hour together. And that's when we have to make it happen. So I really am starting to appreciate like what is coming out of this kind of <laughs> technical, you know, yeah, I'm so dependent on technology and like editing. having, yeah, <laughs> and editing and having my computer die on me. Is, I, I'm realizing is actually a, a gift in disguise. I agree. I think that this definitely... Um, enables me to really listen, active listening, um, right? And really, at the same da- time, kind of slows me down. I have to be present in this moment, right? Because there's no other time that we can record this or edit it. And it just really allows me to kind of think before I speak, which is one of my, you know, thing. it's challenging for me because I'm kind of an extrovert in that way. I think out loud and through kind of feedback and collaboration, but sometimes you can't do that. And I think that this is one of those times. So I'm definitely exercising these things that I've been wanting to kind of work on. So I also believe that it's a blessing in disguise. I never know, you know, I never realized that you're an extroverted thinker too. And I am too. Like sometimes I feel like that's why I don't sound as articulate as I want to be in my head because a lot of the time I'm I'm actually formulating my thought as I'm speaking out loud so it is what it is I accept it <laughs> but I'm just like glad to know I'm not the only one you're not the only one I say it every time I have an interview I kind of open with that so everyone knows you know <laughs> that we're on the same page that I'm actively kind of con- constructing my thoughts and really wanting to have an active conversation so Yay! Yeah. <laughs> well, today is kind of a uh, special format. As as if you've been listening to us as we've been chugging along with the new format, right? We've kind of committed to having shortened uh, podcasts where we're featuring different versions of the segments, but not all of the segments that we've done in an episode before, right? We've we in the older episodes that we've put out, we in one episode would have like a lot of different segments. And in this new format, until, you know, we're back up and running with more editing software and a new computer, which will probably be several months from now. Um, Get ready. I know. Stay ready. Uh, Until then, (laughs) until then, um, we're really just simplifying and only featuring a segment at a time. And so what do we have on the docket today, Tokaya? So on the docket today, we have a corazón, a corazón with one of my favorite people, it's you. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, so today we're really going to uh, have a conversation with you and kind of dive in a little bit deeper um, into why we're doing this, why we're um, kind of formulating this podcast, why we're sustaining it and why it means so much to us. Mm-hmm. So I think we're just going to, you know, kick it off with um, just that. I wanted to know a little bit more about why, you know, you're in recovery and why you're doing this healing work. You've been super honest, obviously, with me, but with, you know, our listeners about, you know, being in AA, being in ACA. And I just think that 
um, it'd be great for us to kind of listen into the details and for you to kind of walk us through that journey. Sure. So I'm going to just leave it at that. Take that as you will. And yeah, let us know. Oh, and before we get started, too, um, for listeners, uh, when she said you, she meant me, <laughs> the other Adriana. Yes. But don't you worry. Um, on our next episode, we're going to turn the mic over back to Adriana, and she will be interviewed by me. So this is sort of a two-part Corazón a Corazón. Part one is with me. Part two will be with Adriana. So um, just know that that's coming. So the question is to tell the listeners and you a little more about just why I'm in recovery. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's a really big question. And it's not necessarily linear or easy, but I'm going to do my best. Um, A couple of um, just like point uh, points that I want to make sure that I address before I get started on that, too. So I I'm pretty open about being in recovery. Um, Not pretty. I actually am very open. People are sometimes very surprised. And a part of that is because while I am a member of both Alcoholics Anonymous and a member of a fellowship called Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, um, part of those programs uh, relies very much on the principle of anonymity anonymity. I always have trouble with that word, but you know, basically the idea of being anonymous. Um, So um, I'm a member and I break that tradition often. I break my own anonymity often um, in the real world, but know that like whatever I share today is um, not on behalf of those organizations. Um, I don't speak for those fellowships. I've just happened to be a member of them. And I talk about being a member in case anyone's interested or curious and wants to learn more. They can attend a meeting or, or go to to um, the websites that they have and learn more about uh, those programs that way. But I'm, my experience in recovery, while it has very much been tied up in being a member of both of those fellowships, my re- recovery really has been more of a holistic approach that... Um, requires a lot of tools in my tool bag. I think I've talked about that before. I have different tools in my recovery toolkit. And so um, being a member of both of those fellowships, is it's not limited to that, my recovery. So I just wanted to kind of point that out because I just am very um, uh, respectful of the traditions that both of those fellowships hold. And, and being anonymous is one of them. So I'm not anonymous. I think if people do a little digging, they know who I am, you know, beyond just my first name. But just wanted to point that out. And honestly, my um, journey with recovery didn't start in either of those fellowships. It's not a very, like, uh, fast beginning, actually. So... To, to be able to really pinpoint when my recovery began, I mean, I'd have to go back to childhood, but I will actually start um, more with, like, my relationship with my recovery really started with my, my understanding and uh, my acknowledgement of having a problem with alcohol first, right? So I um, didn't actually drink until I was almost 19 years old. And I might have already been 19. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when, like, the first time I drank was. So I didn't drink at all in high school. I was sort of like a little straight-edge kid without trying to be. Like, I didn't necessarily believe, um, you know, like, people who are familiar with straight-edge philosophy. Um, I'm probably more straight-edge today, <laughs> if anything, because now I'm, like, actually very actively... Um, against putting certain things in my body, um, not just because I'm in recovery, but now it's like an active choice. Um, but growing up in high school, I just never needed it. I was like, that's not for me. I had friends that drank and they respected that I did it. Um, I had friends that, you know, smoked weed and, and marijuana and did other drugs. And I hung out with them and they just respected that I didn't do it. There was never like a pressure uh, for me to do it. So growing up, <clears throat> I just didn't... I didn't, um, I skipped school a lot, but I didn't, like, do drugs or anything like that. And um, when I left home for the first time, I graduated high school 
1998. And then my graduation was like in the month of June. By the month of July, I had already left home and was living in Minnesota. (laughs) My uh, brother and my father actually had helped me move out there. I had moved to Minnesota for like a vocational school. I was going to school to be in radio. And it was like a certificate program in the Twin Cities. It was like in a suburb of the Twin Cities in Minnesota. So similar to like what the Illinois Broadcasting School here is or like University of Phoenix. I think of those kinds of schools where it's like and I actually I think the University of Phoenix might be an accredited like university but like this was not a university (laughs) it was literally like i was getting a nine month certificate so that you know college wasn't even like something i thought about that i needed for myself i just like went to this you know alternative school because i wanted to get to work right away so i grew up outside of las vegas and las vegas and minnesota are two totally different worlds um Before Las Vegas, like, I was born in Tucson, Arizona. I am the daughter of immigrants. Um, I grew up in a very Mexican household. And so, um, like, Las Vegas, I still was, like, very tied to that. And there were plenty of, you know, I I lived in a suburb of Las Vegas and had a lot of um, white neighbors, and I went to a predominantly white school. But I still had, you know... Um, friends that were Latinx and I had people of color in my life (laughs) and I moved to Minnesota and that like drastically changed. Um, Also, I had never been to the Midwest, so I was also like in awe of the seasons and the winter and it was just like a really big culture change, not just because I was leaving home for the first time, um, but I was also just in a completely different geographic Um, it was like a tundra, right? I'm going from like the extreme of a desert to like the extreme of like a tundra, like a winter. (laughs) So there was just so much happening for me in those first few months of like living on my own. I lived in an apartment complex that was like adjacent to a community college that was separate from like where I was going to school. So my building was filled with college kids. So it felt like a dorm, but it wasn't a dorm. And... I made some um, pretty incredible friendships there. Like, one of my oldest friendships is uh, with a man named Merjan, who I met living there, and we're still friends today. And we always laugh about, like, our experiences there, because Merjan is um, a black Muslim man, and we were, like, the only ones that weren't white in that (laughs) building. And, like, at the time, we didn't have the language to articulate our experience or, like, what we were going through or, like, the racism or microaggressions that we faced. Um, And so we just laugh about that now around, like... That's another story I would love to share with you someday. There's, like, a really funny story about how we met. Um, But all of that said... I I think that's where I, like, first got introduced to, like, this idea of rebelling <laughs> against, like, the good girl um, kind of persona that I had made for myself. You know, I, I always considered myself, like, a good student, a good daughter, and even good student, I put in quotes, because, like, I skipped school so much in high school, but I was really good at, like, lying, to myself and to others. So, you know, I kind of had this like double life in a way. Um, And even that's not really true. I was all of those things. I just was really good about putting up the front because I was really afraid of like disappointing my parents. Um, I'll get more into like my family um, dynamics in a little bit, but want to really focus on just like my journey with uh, alcohol and drugs first. So I, um, you know, started making friends in the building and a lot of people smoked weed in my building. So I really got into smoking weed first. Um, And it felt fine. It felt like, like something that was manageable. And it was also just like my introduction to like doing anything that altered my state of mind. And like around winter time of that first year, that's when I was like, okay, well, I've already smoked weed. I might as well try alcohol. 
And it was like, uh, I was dating a guy at the time and we were visiting um, his hometown, which was way further north uh, in Minnesota. It's a small town called Bemidji. We were visiting um, his like hometown and we were at a fr- like his childhood friend's house and they were- everybody was razzing me because I had never drank before. They were like, what do you mean you've never drank and you've never gotten drunk? So they're like, OK, that's going to change tonight. Oh and I was just like, fine, let's do it. And ended up like, again, I drank that night to like get drunk. It wasn't like a matter of like trying it out. I went like from zero to 60. And that was like a very clear indication for me that like oh this is the kind of drinker I'm gonna be because I was just like also very aware of like how people were like um trying to see what my reaction was gonna be what was I gonna be like you know and I'm a pretty funny person so like (laughs) I'm already like wildly entertaining so people were already like just laughing at everything that I was saying and doing. And that, you know, first time experience really is the way, the persona that I created for myself when I used to drink. So I was very much like a party girl. Like people loved to party with me. Um, I was always a life of the party when I did drink. I also like was over the top, like <laughs> um, in terms of like my, like, I was definitely myself, but, like, volume 10. So, like, very, uh, like, way louder, more gregarious, um, definitely more, like, ballsy and bold. um, Wasn't afraid to tell people whatever. I was thinking, like, no freaking filter at all when I was drinking. And I'm sort of, like, people who know me, they're like, but that's you already. But it was just, like, um, just off kilter in a way in that, I drank very heavily, like, the first two years that I um, first started drinking. It was, like, literally zero to 60. And it was not ever called out. Like, no one ever um, questioned it because everybody around me who was, like, a young person was drinking at the same amounts. I had a lot of guy friends. I was, like, sort of trying to drink at the same, like, rate they were, keeping up with them. And, like, it was just wasn't questioned. Like, no one ever said anything. And uh, even now, I'm, like, literally just thinking about that for for the first time in a really long time. I think even back then, this was almost 20 years ago, right? Like, I'm thinking, like, I was already... Definitely, I remember, like, missing work or, like, showing up to to work late or showing up to work drunk or whatever. And then, like, I eventually got jobs that were in like the service industry so like I remember being a hostess at one point and like it was it was legal to serve alcohol at 18 in Minnesota so like I I don't think I drank at work but I was like around people that were drinking and stuff so um after I graduated the program and started working in my quote-unquote career I was I worked in radio for a few years um that like my drinking slowed down a little bit. And so I, I, a big part of that is like, I have always had to pay my way. Like I didn't get a lot of like assistance, financial aid when I was in the vocational school. And so even from then at 18, I was paying for my rent, paying for all of like my expenses that weren't covered by any student loan that I, I got. Um, so that always helped kind of like uh, heart, like, rein it in in a way you know um it allowed me to be functioning because like I still had instilled in me that like immigrant ethic of showing up to work even if I missed here and there like I knew like okay I have other I had like two jobs at, uh, at once all the time like, I always had more than one job so I was like always knew I'd be okay money wise um and like, I just didn't question that I had any kind of issue with my drinking And then when I got into my career, I, you know, took it more seriously um, and just really worked really hard at whatever job I was doing and worked long hours and like lived in a small town. So like there was also like not a lot of opportunity to go out and meet people. So I'll fast forward um, throughout my 20s. That sort of was like the pattern. I worked a lot. Um, I ended up moving from Minnesota to Reno, which is 
part of Nevada as well, but it's like a whole other part of the state. And um, that's where my drinking kind of spiked again. I had broken up with someone that I had met in Minnesota and was single and just like over 21 now and um, just going to bars and like just drank like very heavily, very, very heavily. Um, And I just remember like just doing really stupid things and like a part of that was like driving drunk i used to have a car and i remember i i definitely dr- drove drunk a few times um i definitely found myself in situations where like i was taken advantage of um sexually assaulted but in my mind i didn't realize it was sexual assault because my idea or like my idea of consent was yet like formulating so I carried a lot of shame and guilt around like um sexual assault or you know drunk sex that like I engaged in because I just wasn't really clear on my role at the time I just felt like okay I got myself in that situation so um I I don't think until I got sober I really started to think about um, how that like all played like with each other and um, I just also again was around other people who were like me and so like no one ever questioned me in terms of like oh you're drinking too much or like you really need to slow down or how about your family I mean did through this entire like time were you like visiting back did they ever see drinking as a problem did they ever drink? Like, what was kind of the history with them? Yeah, that's a great question. So my family never knew I had an issue with drinking until I quit, which was many years later. And some of that is because I was, again, really good at compartmentalizing. So whenever I would go home, I I wasn't visiting, like, a lot during these, like, mid-20s because I just was sort of broke. I didn't have a lot of money. But when I would go home and visit, like, I never drank in front of my family. Um, so I would, like, rein it in, you know? I was able to, like, start and stop, basically. And I think that was the other reason why I never really thought I had a problem was because I was like, oh, I could just stop whenever I want. And I want to say, like, this was around the time, so around 21 and 22, when I, I started um, practicing dry January. So if you think about it, that's when I probably started to suspect that I had a problem because it was like clear enough for me that I drank enough that I needed to take a break once a year. Mm. <laughs> so that was like 22, 23 when I started doing that ev- like consistently. It was my tradition that I would take the month of January off as a like exercise. I think in my mind, like if I could take all the month of January off, obviously I don't have an issue, but it's like a good like break because, um, you know, the holidays is always just like everything's on volume 10. My birthday is in late December. So like by the time New Year's Day would come, I was just so ready. My liver needed a break and I was just so ready Mm. to like practice healthy habits for a month. (laughs) And sometimes I would make it the whole 30 days and sometimes I wouldn't, you know, so I think about that today now too. It's like, wow, I probably subconsciously knew then already that I was like, like, that I was, like, hurting. Like, I was hurting myself and doing things and putting myself in pain because of my relationship with alcohol. But, like, I was in such, like, denial that I just didn't see it that way. Because I was very good at, like, surrounding myself with other people that just enabled me in a way. And I, I really believe that a lot of it is, too, that we live in a society that's, like, just normalizes alcoholism. And so, like, it's very easy if you want to be a problem drinker to continue that without like having those things that help check you. So not, no one needed to be checking me. It was just it was all at the end of the day, it all had to come down on me. Um, so around this time, um, I get sick of Reno. I moved to Chicago and I was 23 when I moved to Chicago. Me too. Wait, was I? I think I was. Oh, okay, cute. Sorry. I think I was also 23. Maybe there's like a magic magic um, relationship with 23-year-olds in Chicago. But yeah, I moved here. Um, I had 
decided to go back to school and get like a bachelor. So I transferred to DePaul University and whew, worked full time, went to school part time. So that was like a forever thing. I was only here for a couple of years um, before I was like, okay, the winters are rough. And I ended up moving to Puerto Rico. <laughs> so I only like got a little taste of Chicago. My drinking was around the same. Um, moved to Puerto Rico, and that's when my drinking like really spiked. So it was, it was, um, you know, I was 25 when I moved to uh, Puerto Rico, and I fell in love with the island. Oh my god, it's still, it's still in my heart. Like it shaped me and um, influenced me as a person in so many ways that I can't even describe, and that maybe can be another time too. But like it, um. It was such a beautiful place. It is a beautiful It's paradise. Like, um, if you meet any Puerto Rican, they're so proud to be from that island, and I get it. It's, it is really, like, a magical place. The people are amazing. Um, but uh, for me, it was also a place that, like, I felt incredibly lonely um, because I was for the first time speaking Spanish with my peers and I realized that my Spanish um, was limited at the time to only having spoken Spanish to my family and like I don't have like really deep conversations with my family <laughs> like I do with my chosen family or my friends right um, I don't like have these philosophical discussions or debates with my family that I do engage in every day in my regular life with folks and friends in English so when I moved to Puerto Rico it was the first time I realized like oh my gosh I'm really struggling to express myself in the way that I know I can and want to um and I was dating someone who I still love very much you know we, we've broken up over 10 years ago but like he's still like a really great person in my life um, and he always was like, what are you talking about? Your Spanish is great. Like, I don't even notice a hint of an accent. And I'm like, it's not about that. It's like, it takes me forever to like, tell you exactly what it is. Like, I can't find the words. And it, it really like depressed me. Like, I, I don't, I didn't know it at the time, but I think I was depressed. I was like, very sad and like, felt lonely. Um, for at least the first like six months that I lived there. But I started to adjust and obviously, you know, being able to speak Spanish every day with people who were my age, I just started to adapt. And um, I dated at the time. I didn't realize it, but um, he probably doesn't identify as one, but I think he is uh, either an alcoholic or, you know, addicted to marijuana. He smoked every single day. Um, I've never seen him not high. And... Um, we both drank very heavily because we were both in like the industry. So he was a bartender. His best friend, who was at the time also a very close friend of mine, was a bartender. Mm -hmm. And then I worked in the bar too. I wasn't a bartender. I was like a cocktail waitress. So like that's what just what we did. Like we would party or like smoke weed together, and it was just like a very normal part of life like we would on our days off go to the beach and like take six packs and that's what we do we just sit on the beach and drink a ton and then I became a flight attendant <laughs> shortly thereafter um in Puerto Rico and not saying that everyone who works in the industry has a drinking problem but I do believe that the airline industry has a high rate of um people who abuse alcohol and use drugs it's sort of like just one of those industries that like they have high rates right so i would say the same with like the service industry right if you work in a restaurant industry or a bar like you're probably have a high rate of having a drinking problem <laughs> so the space is just more conducive to that sort of consumption or lifestyle if you will yeah definitely and I mean I think when I was in my relationship I probably didn't drink as much but when he and I broke up um I was a flight attendant for many years after and like single Adriana is like just drinks even more um and I yeah I just rem I mean I have a lot of fond memories again being a flight attendant was definitely like something that shaped me and um, was like a really important part of my life, but I'm so glad that I'm not a white attendant anymore. I'm just like not built to do it forever. And it was just really hard on my body and it, it encouraged for me um, very unhealthy habits. 
Um, and you know, I, that's me and how I reacted to it. I have friends who are flight attendants that live wonderful, healthy lives. So not saying there's a direct correlation, just more like that's how it affected me. Um, and you know, all of those travels eventually brought me back to Chicago because I was ready to go back to school. I was very like discon. I was just like trying to find my place in the world. I was approaching 30 and I knew I was like restless. I was ready to be intellectually stimulated. So I wanted to go back to grad school. So that's what brought me back to Chicago. And, um, you know, I went to grad school, and in grad school, uh, I w- went to a program that was only one year long, so it was, like, really intense, and a lot of smart kids um, in my cohort, um, and I always, like, was, like, how did I even get here? How did I get in here? Um, because I was just, like, an average student up until that point, um, but I I knew I was smart. I knew I worked hard, and once I was in the program, it was fine, but, like, I was, like, the only, like, quote-unquote adult in the program. Like, I had, I was one of the few folks that worked during the program because they discouraged it because it was so, like, intense. Um, But I had to work, so I was still a flight attendant in grad school. And so, like, I think that year was probably just, like, I was drinking as hard as I was studying and as, as hard as I was working. And I knew by the time I graduated, I was like, okay. I'm 30 years old now, like, do I really want to live my 30s as this, like, party girl? Like, I think I finally was like, I think I have a problem, you know, and I had had actually enough, like, bad nights drinking that I was like, okay, this, this is like, this is just, like, exhausting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I still, you know, like, I remember looking up, like, am I an alcoholic, you know, or, like, do I have a drinking problem on the internet? And, like, I remember, like, doing those little checklists and, like, now when I, I actually recently pulled one of those up and I realized all the things that I had said no to were actually yeses. So it's, like, really cool <laughs> to see, like, my growth, but also, like, wow, I was really, like, my thinking was really warped and I was in very serious denial, Um, so I remember the, like, the year after I had finished grad school, I was, like, in the middle of figuring out what I was doing with work and stuff. I went and got assessed at Hazelden, which is, like, Betty Ford. And they were, like, they did their little assessment of me and a checklist. And they were, like, well, you know, you are not physiologically addicted like you're not physically addicted to alcohol like if you stop drinking like you do you know I told them I take breaks and stuff or like maybe I don't drink every single day or I don't wake up with like um needing a drink you know my alcoholism never got that bad where like there were days that I didn't drink at all but it was like very like controlled like I would sometimes wait for the weekend and sometimes I couldn't wait it was just like I didn't think about it like that um but I would be able to take breaks I could always take a whole month off if I needed to right I was always doing these little challenges I think that's like my head trying to like figure out how to control it prove to yourself yep and actually the that year too I got really heavy into running and running was like my way of trying to like control my drinking because if I was up if I had to get up early to uh train for a marathon or a race or whatever it was uh, really horrible to do it when you were hungover. Um, and, I mean, it helped, but it didn't. Like, I remember running 10 miles once. It was a 10-mile training run, and I was, like, still drunk. Ugh. I know. I can't believe I did that shit. So, anyway. No judgment. I just, that sounds rough. It's hardcore, right? It also just yeah, goes to run. show, like, how dedicated I was to, like, to, like, live in the denial that I had an issue. Um... So I um, went and got assessed and they told me, you know, you're not physiologically addicted, but based on like the answers that you've um, given us, you're clearly like a problem drinker. So I was like, okay, so what does that mean? And they were like, well, you have a couple options. You could do like an outpatient program or you can work with like a substance abuse counselor. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try the counselor route. So I started working with this guy. Um, who's a therapist, um, 
and we the first time I went and saw him he was like yeah there's a few things we could do so you could try like the abstinence based approach which is, which is AA mm-hmm. um, or you could try moderation management and I was like what's moderation management and he's like well it's a, it's a program that teaches you how to drink responsibly um, and you know you learn how to drink in moderation and all I really heard was like oh I could still drink that's definitely what I'm gonna do yay <laughs> so I just like laugh about it now and and sometimes I get like hard on myself for having taken that route because that was a uh, that was like when I was 30 31 so now I'm about to be 39 I'm like I've been sober for two and a half years so I got sober when I was um 30. What, with 2016, I was 36. Yeah, 36. So I'm like, I could have saved myself at least five five years, <laughs> right, of heartache, but I needed to go this route. So I did moderation management, which I think does work for a lot of people. You know, you do like a little reset where you don't drink for a month, but then you like journal and kind of do a lot of self-reflection around like how you're feeling and then when you go back to drinking it's supposed to be very there's rules basically that you're supposed to abide by and it worked for me for a little while and it helped really rein in the volume of drinking I was doing but ultimately it just it didn't work because I ended up back to where I was in terms of like having that push-pull dynamic. And I think the best way I can describe my relationship with alcohol now is, like, an abusive relationship. (laughs) That's really it. So, like, yes, I absolutely had these amazing times with alcohol where, you know, it was fun and funny and we, you know, we laughed and I had these incredible, glamorous, like, experiences Um, I, you know, have drank, um, fancy cocktails and learned how to like discern really good whiskeys and all of this stuff. Right. Um, I could be whoever I wanted to be with alcohol, but also alcohol would kick me in the teeth and like punch me in the face and, um, put me in these really dangerous situations where I'm like really very fortunate to be here to be able to talk about it and like not dead somewhere like I remember waking up on the sidewalk Mm -hmm. and the only reason I woke up was because I noticed like a man circling me you know so like things like that where I'm just like Jesus I say that stuff out loud and I'm like I can't believe that was the same person right and you know, I would always, like, forgive alcohol. Like, oh, it was just that one time. It's fine. It won't be the same next time. It won't be the same. Um, he's being so sweet to me now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So, it, like, it took me to, like, equate it with the relationship, an abusive, dysfunctional relationship for me to be, like, it doesn't matter if I'm an alcoholic or not. At the end of the day, like, this is not a healthy relationship I have with alcohol. And do you consider yourself, because I know that there's usually, you know, language means a lot and mm-hmm. there's so much significance behind it. Do you identify as an alcoholic? Like, what do you, how can you name it? What do you identify with? Like, share a little bit about that with us. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for asking that question because it's one that I still struggle with. And I think um, because I struggle with it, it makes sense to with what I identify. So... I just want to say really quick to sum up because I know I've kind of gone on and on about how my journey has been. But like the day I quit alcohol altogether or had to make that decision, it was a day that I hadn't even drank more than a beer the night before. Um, But what helped me come to that conclusion was I started working with a therapist uh, who I still work with today. She's brilliant. And um, I actually went to her because I was having relationship problems with the people that I was dating, I realized I had a pattern. So I knew that much, right? Like I knew like, okay, every time I, I choose someone that I fall in love with, like they're similar. So I was like, I need help. I think I have problems with intimacy or, 
or you know i'm the common denominator and um i'm like but i also need to work with someone that you know understands like my cultural upbringing that works from an intersectional feminist lens so like i interviewed her because by the time i went got to her i'd already been through a few therapists and had learned a lot about life and what i needed right and knew that also like I had some like unresolved trauma that I probably needed to get to the root of at some point. So I kind of brought all of this to her and she was like, okay. So I worked with her for a few months and one day I showed up um, at her office. It was like a Saturday and the night before I had had this really shitty interaction with this guy that I had been hanging around with. I wouldn't even call it dating because that really wasn't what it was. I was like wasting time with someone that I knew I didn't have any feelings for in terms of like wanting to build anything with. I knew he wasn't like right for me, but I was still like um, wasting his time and I was wasting my time. And the night before he and I had gotten in a huge fight because he had thrown a temper tantrum because he didn't want to wear a condom. And I think I've told that story before. But that really, that interaction was what actually drove me to sobriety. And at the time, it didn't make sense. Like, what? What does one have to do with the other? But when I told that story to my therapist the next day, and I was like really mad, I was fuming. I could see that she was getting mad too. But I realize now that she wasn't mad so much at the situation. She was mad at me. And I could tell she was like really struggling with what she was about to say. But she took a risk and she told me she was like, what would you say if I told you that the problems that you keep having with men specifically at the time, it was mostly men. Um, I, yeah, I only dated men for a very long, you know, most of my life. She was like, um, what would you say that uh, if I told you that it had to do with your drinking? And I was like, but I wasn't even drunk last night. I only had one beer. And she was like, it doesn't matter. You're playing with fire just like you are with your drinking. Like you, you toe the line, right? You're like, you're peering into the fire pit. and like, You expect not to get burned. And I was like, fuck. Like I just started crying because I knew like she was telling me the truth. And I couldn't deny it anymore. I knew. Like, I knew right then that she was right. And I was like, I was crying because I was relieved. Mm. I was like, relieved that, like, as scary, as scary as it sounded to, like, give up alcohol altogether. I, I knew, too, like, now I can just, like, focus on what needs to happen. Because it's like that control that I, like, worked so hard to maintain so that I can keep drinking. I it was being taken away. I wouldn't have to do that anymore. So, um, all that said, like, I think I also surrendered with this idea of like that I'd been struggling with that. I had a problem period. And, you know, she told me that there was a big difference between quitting and recovery. And I was like, what do you mean? Cause I, in my mind, I was like, I'm just going to do it. Like I've always quit alcohol i'm just gonna stop but she's like no you're gonna you're gonna go through recovery and i'm gonna be here to support you and i wasn't even clear on what that meant but now i'm now i'm understanding and it's all it's a bigger word for a more holistic approach but at the time in my first year of like recovery it was only focused on like my sobriety with alcohol and, and drugs so quitting alcohol meant i was going to make a decision to quit any substance that you know altered my mood <laughs> um that wasn't prescribed you know like that would be different so if you were to explain what healing versus sobriety is how would you explain that like how how what's the difference between those two words or those two approaches sure or like well sobriety just means like abstaining right so like i am someone who lives as a sober person i don't um i don't put anything in my body that's going to alter my mood unless it's like again like if i'm 
getting surgery, I'm I'm not going to decline any kind of like thing that I might need to help me uh, tolerate the surgery, right? Right. But from the day to day, like I don't I don't smoke weed, I don't drink alcohol, I don't, you know, I'm, and and even like medication, I'm very careful about asking like things that like are going to mostly trigger me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to get back to the question you'd asked me of how I identify. So in certain spaces, I, I do identify as an alcoholic, not because I feel like I'm physiologically ever got to a point where I was addicted, but it's a spectrum for me. And so like, I know that if I hadn't quit, I would have gotten to the end in terms of like I would have died from alcohol and what, how does that make it different if it you know um, but I I so I identify as an alcoholic but I think what's probably most accurate is like uh, there's like a disorder I think it's called like alcohol Ugh, I can't think of the word right now there there's like a, a clinical word that I've heard um, but I think that's what that's been the most helpful for me is to think of it as a spectrum. Um, and at the end of the day, it almost doesn't matter what I call myself. Like the answer is the same. Like I, for me, I just can't drink period. I can't, um, take drugs. Cause it's also like a way for me to numb out and escape from what like, I actually need to feel. And, you know, a year into my, into my recovery, my therapist, as I continued working with her, got me to realize that the reason I drank were for reasons that had nothing really to do with just drinking. It had to do with like the root of the problem, which was a lot of it was trauma at the end of the day. it's That's the easiest way to say it. So like I grew up in a very loving home, but I also grew up in a very dysfunctional home. And um I learned survival traits in childhood that I brought with me into adulthood that just no longer served me. And because I didn't know how to cope, I think I turned to alcohol as one of those coping mechanisms. Um, But, you know, they do talk about how alcoholism is a disease. I grapple with what that actually means to me. I think it's a spiritual disease. But in terms of the actual, like, physical disease, I recommend a book called... um, how to control your drinking I think it's called but the author for sure is Annie Grace and she talks about alcohol and like how it's just a very addictive drug um and that like anybody can be addicted she she doesn't discount that there are some people that are more predisposed to be mm-hmm. more quickly addicted but it's a very interesting read and I highly recommend it um so like that also kind of got me to sometimes question how I um think of it as a disease but all that said, like, I, um, I, you know, realize that, like, my drinking is very similar to the way my dad drank when I was growing up. So my dad was also a binge drinker. He drank all the way up until I was probably, I'd have to ask him, but he probably drank pretty heavily up until I was, like, somewhere between 12 and 14. Okay. And then he kind of just stopped. Like, he'll still occasionally have a beer if we're at a wedding or something, but, like, he doesn't drink like he used to. But he never went through recovery. And to answer your question around, like, what's the difference between, like, sobriety and recovery, for me, recovery is very intentional. And you are facing the causes and the root problems of what, made you want to drink and what would um kind of like what were the reasons why you wanted to numb or escape or like like you know like get away from whatever your day-to-day was stressing you out over right i feel like at the end of the day i see drinking as a or like heavily drinking or or whatever it may be as a just negative coping mechanism and so going to the root of the problem is key to figure out like why you were using whatever coping mechanism in the first place. Yeah. And I mean, we're really simplifying for the sake of this conversation because there's, 
there were probably many opportunities where maybe if I had known what I know now then I could have quickly turned it around without it like steering as out of control as it did um but at the end of the day I know that a lot of my warped thinking was already in place before I ever started drinking and that a lot of it has to do with growing up in dysfunction and dysfunction is definitely also like a disease and I put that in quotes Um, and that's where a lot of the work that I'm doing now in my other fellowship, ACA, is really just also very healing and a bigger part of my recovery um, because that is really just lifelong work that's going to have to happen. I really am so fortunate for my therapist having had me do it in the order that I did it because I don't think I would have stayed sober if I had done the work I'm doing now at the beginning because it's very painful and it's very uncomfortable but it's the only way that I would have been able to heal in the level that I'm healing um I think that's such a deeper and longer conversation around like the work that I'm doing um to recover from childhood um but it is just like already and i've actually am celebrating a year in that program this week oh yay! yeah um and my sobriety date is uh july 23rd 2016 so i've been sober for two and a half years and i've been in recovery for the other work that i'm doing uh for about a year so like two and a half years is my where i really start to count my journey being very intentional in my healing and being very deliberate and in working like on my healing and what for that what that looks like for me is like I attend three to four meetings a week so it's like a really big part of my life um I go to a therapist I work with a recovery partner I work with a sponsor you know um I do work with other healers that are outside of the recovery space I work with healers that are uh, intentional about healing community Um, I exercise. I am very open about my recovery. That's a big part of my recovery. I need to be open about it because I I lied for so long. Mm -hmm. That for me, it feels like lying if I'm not being open about where I'm at today. Because it's clearly like such a big part of my life. My recovery is like, I'm fighting for my life. It's like, it's so much more for me now. It's funny. Like, I'm really glad we're talking about how I got here because of the alcohol. But because I've been sober for two and a half years, which is nothing in the, like, sober world or, you know, like, the sobriety world, mm-hmm. it's still long enough that I'm, like, sometimes, like, I have to really work at not forgetting how I got here. And it's very much a choice now. Someone asked me once, like, if you could, would you ever drink again? Or do you think you could ever get to a place where you could drink again and I'm like I don't want to like it I used to think it was a sacrifice and now like I just see like what an amazing opportunity it's been for me to it just freed up so much of my time to focus on the the shit that needed to get like addressed and while it's really painful work like there's just nothing I can tell you to describe the level of like freedom like this is for me real liberation work and I talk about the work I do for a living and the work I do in my community. And I realize, like, because, you know, I've worked in social justice spaces for many years. To me, I didn't really start doing the work up until two and a half years ago because I don't think I could do it authentically if I'm not healing myself or working on my stuff. Like, I think that is, like, my big theme these days is, like, we really need to do inner work in order to heal like movements mm-hmm. so yeah Snap, crackle pop that's so true kind of the same thing and we've talked about this so many times the same thing of we can't help others we can't help relationships family members if we are not in a good place if we're not you know working through our trauma and healing and you know doing the work and this is, you know, a perfect example of that. So thank you for sharing. I did want to, <clears throat> I did want to ask, kind of taking us, you know, you took us through your journey and kind of centering as to like where you are now. 
for the past kind of two and a half years that you mentioned, what has been kind of the biggest lesson that you've learned and your biggest challenge? Like those are mm-hmm. kind of things that I've always wondered, like we've had so many conversations and I know you in a different way, but from this experience of, you know, choosing not to drink anymore and really shifting your, your life to self-care and really putting yourself first. What, what can you tell us about that? Mm, Such a good question. I don't know if I have one, but I guess what I'll say is that like, cause it's all so intertwined for me. Um, there was just so much that needed to be turned on its head in how I used to think about it. One of those was dating, of course. The whole reason I got into therapy with my current therapist was for dating. And it was like we never even got to, we're barely starting to get to that now because what I needed to learn was I needed to do a hard reset. Like I didn't know what the hell love was. I didn't even love myself. Um, So I had to date myself for the last like, two years I only just started like step putting a toe into the dating pool in like the summer yeah, like I just yeah just a couple of months ago did I I always joke I'm like I had to marry myself yes and then I now I'm at a place where I'm opening up the relationship we're at a place where we could open <laughs> the relationship but I will always be my primary partner yes. always I will never ever abandon or betray myself ever again and do things that like don't serve me or, you know, date someone that will, um, you know, make me choose. So that is definitely being been a huge lesson and a big challenge. It's a challenge because I'm, I'm starting to date again and it looks completely different. So for me, all my friends are always like, are you dating? That's always the one thing they want to ask me. And I'm like, yeah, but, I want you to understand it doesn't look the way you probably think it does. Like, I go on dates now, and I really just want to know, like, is this person going to be a good friend? And then if anything comes from, like, after that, that'll be, remains to be seen. Because for me, friendship has to be the center of the new relationship. And so it moves at a glacial pace. (laughs) And... Um, a lot of it is just like, just because I'm attracted to someone doesn't mean that that's supposed to be a relationship. And I might not have an initial attraction to someone who could end up being like a partner, right? So like a lot of it is just like completely just turning my like mind around how I used to think about dating and love. I used to have this little checklist of like what I wanted in a person and I would go on these dates. And if you didn't hit these check marks, I didn't go on a second date or a third date. And I'm like, I would just look at people like disposable. It was, Mm -hmm. it was a really toxic way of approaching that. Um, I guess the other like big lesson is just like when you start to get honest with yourself like really honest because part of my recovery is like just constant self-reflection, like processing and just trying to be a better person and like honest and accountable for myself and like telling on myself when I'm thinking about sneaky things, like just saying it out loud and talking about it. Um, When you really start to get honest with yourself, you just start to, uh, free yourself from old mindsets or, or things that you never even dared to say out loud. So for me, I knew for, I've known for a very long time that I'm queer, but it wasn't until my sobriety that I really fully embraced my queerness. And like, like that was part of like loving myself and like honoring myself, right? It was like being like, hey, it's okay to be who you are. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks or who you're going to lose or um, who's going to judge you as long as you don't judge yourself, right? So it's been amazing. Like, I get emotional because, like, I'm sad for the... I'm sad for not having honored myself in that way before... But I'm also, like, incredibly joyful now that I 
I see who I am and who I'm becoming. And I really love her. I love her too. <laughs> and so many people love her. And it's, I mean, I was talking to my therapist yesterday, loving yourself, honoring yourself, putting yourself first, centering your life around yourself is so hard. Mm -hmm. There's so many layers to it. There's so many barriers. We've been kind of socialized not to do that. Right. Coming through trauma and so many different things, it's just, it's the last thing that we do. And it it's mm -hmm. so hard. And to hear you, as someone who's working on that, to hear you say that puts a huge smile on my face. And I'm so proud of you. Um, because I know how much work all of this is and I know how much labor and how much time um, it takes. It's not easy work. It doesn't happen, you know, de la noche a la mañana. And it just, it 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 is self-love. You doing this work for yourself is that. And it's, you know, goals, right? To achieve that and to be honest with yourself, to liberate yourself and feel free is is amazing and it's something that we all need to be working on. So I just love it. Mm. Um, a final question for you. Okay. You know, we are to end in a, you know, kind of hopeful and not that this is not hopeful, but just kind of looking forward and um, forward thinking, you know, we're approaching the end of the year, mm. you know, we're going to leave behind what doesn't serve us and focus on what is going to kind of feed us and nurture, nurture us. What is one thing that you are really looking forward to working on? It could be around your sobriety or it could just be around, you know, healing. This is something that we talk about in the podcast every day, every time we have it, you know, things that we're working on to improve ourselves, to improve our mental health. Um, what What's one of those things that you're really looking forward to, um, to the future and uh, next year? Um. Well, it's great that you asked that because this time of the year just gets me very reflective on top of me already reflecting all the time. <laughs> but I get very reflective because it's my new year. My birthday is December 29th. So I'm always like starting to think about like, wow. And this was like a very hard year. I got lost a friend um, to suicide and... Um, just also went through so many like hard changes and lost people through just um you know just kind of like when you lose people that just aren't in your life anymore so there was a it was a lot of loss this year but i think there were a lot of gains too and where i'm currently at and what i'm looking forward to is like i really take it day by day but i do love to plan i'm a capricorn And I'm just doing a lot of learning right now. Um, and a lot of the changes that I'm putting into place are small, but I know that they're like going to, they're building on each other. So some of the changes I'm putting into place right now are around getting my finances in order. So I'm really looking forward because I, I started little changes already in the last year and I'm starting to like see them kind of snowball. Mm. Um, I'm uh, really also more assertively working on my minimalist lifestyle. Um, I'm already seeing some like really beautiful changes coming from that, like adopting minimalism. And a lot of people think that's around like just stuff, but I'm really like taking an inventory about the, the, the things that I value. Like right now it's primarily looking at like, where am I spending my time? Mm. And am I valuing like the things that I say I value and making those priorities. And I currently am not. Kind of walking the walk, talking the talk type of situation. Yeah, like I always talk about I want to read and write more and I barely do any of that on the day to day. So I'm really looking at making those shifts. This I'm already trying to make those shifts, but I'm really like more hard, hard look, hard changes around those shifts uh, this upcoming new year. Well, I can't wait to hear how it goes. Um, hopefully, you know, listeners will also hear about the new year and how everything's going around your sobriety and your healing journey. Thank you. I mean, I we just scratched the surface, but I, I'm here if anyone has any questions and wants to go further. I, we mostly focused on alcohol today. We didn't really um, 
focus too much on the childhood stuff, but that will be, you know, we I talk about that stuff all the time, so we'll feel free. Episodes. Feel free to like tweet me too. <laughs> I'm at, at Adriana9Diaz or um, find us on Instagram at Sanasana Podcast. Um, you can uh, find us on Facebook at Sanasana Podcast, or you can actually even leave us a message here on SoundCloud as well, and we'll get that. Or if emails more your style, um, you could email us at sanasanapodcast at gmail.com. And I'm looking forward to our retreat, too, because we're going to put out another episode later this month when we do that. Yeah, really excited for that. And we just want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sanasana Podcast, written and co-hosted by Adriana. And Adriana. Our theme song is by Alina Celeste. Our cover art features a photograph by Tanto Jensen. Join the conversation. Follow Sana Sana on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Sana Sana Podcast. Send us love letters to Sana Sana Podcast at gmail.com. And a special thank you today to my wonderful co-host and Corazón a Corazón uh, person, Adriana. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Sana Mañana. Bye-bye. Sana Mañana.